You're listening to the Greater Long Beach Podcast, where our focus is helping people to connect to God, change, and thrive in life. Nehemiah has inspired me, and hopefully as a church, it's inspired you to learn, um, to learn and to see, I think for me especially, to see how God can use ordinary people, as he always does, to do extraordinary things. And we've seen how as a leader, uh, Nehemiah, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, this, this story, if you're, if you're, again, if you're new here and you're, you're here for the first time, we've been reading this book in the Old Testament where part of Jerusalem's, a part of Israel's history is uh, these Israelites have been exiled and, and kicked out of their hometown and their wall had been broken down and uh, Nehemiah gets this vision in his heart uh, as he hears the news that the wall has been broken down, and he, he returns back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, and he motivates the people. And so we've been talking about this in the past few weeks about uh, leadership and influence and how uh, we can learn lessons from an ordinary guy who had a great vision on his heart. And as we begin this new year, how God has put vision in our hearts or things that we want to grow in or change, man, there's a lot we can learn here from Nehemiah. And uh, we've seen how as a leader, Nehemiah got this vision from God and he waited patiently on God to open the doors. You know, we've seen how he led the Israelites out of opposition. As they started the work, they had some haters. And so we saw how he led them out out of that and rallied them toward a focused cause and reminded them of God's grace on them for this great work that that they were accomplishing. And last week we saw how after they finished the wall, the work still wasn't done because it wasn't just about the wall, but about their souls as well, right? And Nehemiah leads them to God and to God's law and reminds them, with Ezra there uh, prophesying and preaching and teaching the word, uh, he reminds them of their need for God's word. And the people respond, right? The, the word of God opens and they stand and they bow and they worship and and we talked about uh, last week how uh, this sort of revival of the soul, it led to great action in the whole Israelite community. And we talked about how at points in our lives we are in need of spiritual revival. A reminder that we are part of something bigger than just what happens on Sundays. But the Sundays is a special time to be reminded by God and His Word. Man, we, we, we serve an awesome God. Amen, church? Um, I shared how we need to be a people of the word, a reverent people, a mobilized people. I just want to encourage the church. You know, we talked last week that we were going to close the door at the, at the beginning of service for the first couple songs just to be able to enforce the, the, the issue. We, we, we want to be uh, a reverent people. We want to be a people that shows up and is prepared to worship our God. And so I want to commend the church for being here and ready to worship. And uh, thank you so much uh, for responding to that direction. And uh, we'll see how it goes in the next few Sundays to come. Just a, re- just a reminder on your newsletter, we didn't say this, but next Sunday we will not be here because we are going to be partnering with the other ch- uh, the West Side Church, the South Bay Church, the Spanish-speaking ministry churches at Maricosta High School next Sunday at 10 a.m. for our Coastal L.A. region uh, worship service. So, if you come here next week, nobody's going to be here, but you can come join us up in Manhattan Beach for this great event uh, that we're trying to do together with our region at least once a quarter 
uh, just to see and fellowship together. Amen? Um, so I shared about how we need to be a people of God's word. And, and I did want to just share this just to ask for your prayers. Because to clarify, I said, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, I remember saying this last week. It doesn't matter who's up here preaching the word. It's God's word. And we need to respect and honor God's word. And, and we need to have a reverent heart towards God's word. But I do... I want you to know that I do understand the responsibility that a person like me has as a communicator of God's word. Does that make sense? I've got to humbly approach. Those who, who teach and preach need to humbly approach God's word and communicate it in a way that is helpful for us today. It requires, it requires a lot of preparation and prayer and humility. And it's, it's, a, it's a great task um, that your preachers and your teachers have and so I ask for your prayer. I ask for your prayer as those of us who are preaching and teaching the word prepare the saints for this great work. Amen. Uh, let's humbly request that. It's a big responsibility. I want to begin with this verse as we close out this series today. We're going to study Nehemiah 13, uh, but the Apostle Paul, you know, uh, he he uh, has his interaction with Jesus himself and. And he's converted, and he's, he's so passionate about planting churches and spreading the gospel. And, and he uses, in different letters that he writes to these churches, that, these assemblies that he's planted, he uses Old Testament passages uh, to, to illustrate and to enlighten the, the message of Christ. And, one of the, um, and then he, he makes this one comment in one of, his, one of his letters. He writes to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 15. I want to read this just to encourage us as we dive into some of our Bible study today. He says this in Romans 15 verse 4, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And, you know, this is during a time he writes this and the Gospels were not in circulation. In other words, um, they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. They weren't reading Colossians and Ephesians like we have. They didn't have that. And so Paul used Old Testament scripture to help them understand. He says, listen, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures we could be encouraged and have hope and i don't know about you but i read some of these stories in the old testament i'd encourage you to this year to just study some of the old testament if you get a chance uh, on your own you'll find some crazy situations in the old testament and in fact as you see these crazy situations you might find yourself in that story you see what i'm saying I mean, Nehemiah was a fallen man. He was a broken man. And you'll see today some of the things that he did to rectify some things in the the Israelite community. And you may think, man, I don't know if I would have done that. But he did it, and we'll see. Man, it's very very interesting because there are times when when, uh, we read these stories in the Old Testament, and I don't know about you, but it provides hope. I look at King David. The story of David killing Goliath, you know, most of us know that story. He kills Goliath, he becomes his great king, and yet he sins tremendously with a woman named Bathsheba and murders her husband, puts him out in the battlefield. And, and you look at, and, but then he repents and God forgives him. And you see this story and you're like, man, God still considered him a man after his own heart. So there's hope for me too. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? 
that's the way we got to read the Old Testament. These are real people in real situations. Man, when you read this stuff, it gives us hope. It gives us encouragement. Amen? Let's read here in, um, in Nehemiah chapter 13. As he closes out his journal, because it's written from his perspective, he shares about four major problems he had to deal with in order to help God's people stay the course. There had been victory at the wall, a reestablished and renewed leadership, spiritual revival. And the people in Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10, the people had, had made vows to do certain things to remain faithful to God and his law. And so Nehemiah is called back to Susa, the city where he was working with the king. And so he goes back to work back there because he's like, man, my job is done here in Jerusalem. People are going, are, are, there's a spiritual revival, the walls have been rebuilt, things are going great. And besides, my boss wants me back at work. So I've got to go back to work, right? So he goes back, and after some time, he asks the king for permission to return to, to Jerusalem and see what's going on. And when he returns to Jerusalem, he finds a mess, this happens, and you'll see here the story of us, because this happens after revival. We get all fired up, we make these great vows and decisions, these New Year's resolutions, and we get excited, and we experience this incredible, you know, if you're a follower of Christ, you start experiencing this incredible connection with God, and, but after a bit, you begin to backslide a little bit. You compromise here and there. You miss a prayer time once in a while. You, you know, I'll show up to church. I, I, I had to miss this Sunday because of family event or whatever. And, um, and all of a sudden, we realize that we get further and further away from God's intentions for us than we thought. And, this, and as we read this, this is the story of the Israelites. If you read the Old Testament, this is the story of the Israelites. But in it, I think we can see our story as well. And in that story, we continually see our desperate need for God. Our desperate need for his amazing grace, his unconditional mercy. I love what Brent was talking about and reading and reminding us of. And as you read some of this, you, and as you read the Old Testament, even on your own, you'll find over and over again... as as a parent, God, I mean, if I were God, I'd be like, I'd, I'd, for, I'd kick these people off. I mean, I'd just destroy all of them. So upset. And yet God, in his unconditional love, over and over and over again, comes back. And through it all, he says, you know what, forget it. I'm going to go down there myself. And I'm going to show them what it is to walk the way that I want them to walk in my new kingdom. And he comes as Jesus. And you read the Gospels and you see Jesus and, and how he interacts with people. And You read the Old Testament, you'll find your story in there. Because so many times that you've made awesome decisions and you made, you know, I'm going to fast every day or I'm going to pray for an hour every week or you make all these great decisions, you'll find your story because you find yourself at different times in your life backsliding, compromising, questioning, doubting, 
and God still comes through. You guys ready? Nehemiah, chapter 13. The first problem that he encounters is a compromising companionship. We'll read here in Nehemiah 13 and verse 4. It says, Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil, prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. Okay, so what's happening here? So Eliashib, this priest that Nehemiah had left in charge of the temple, he says, oh, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and clear all this stuff out and let Tobiah stay here. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, you guys remember who Tobiah was? Tobiah was one of the haters. Tobiah was the one that was punking the Israelites. Not even a, this wall that they're building, not even a fox would sit on it. It would crumble if a fox went on it. I mean, that's Tobiah. He's a hater. And Nehemiah had actually told Tobiah, you will not have any inheritance in what we're doing here. You will have no part or no claim of this historic moment that's happening here. You won't have anything to do with it because of what you're saying and because of your opposition. But after Nehemiah leaves, Eliashib, with good intent, he says, oh, well, maybe Tobiah is like, let's be compassionate towards Tobiah. That's my second cousin's cousin's cousin. Let me, let me be, let me be, you know, let me help him out. He's my relative. You know, that's how we get with family sometimes, right? Look at Nehemiah. He comes in. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. And sometime later I asked with his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased, and I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. Okay, Nehemiah doesn't even have a discussion with Tobiah. There's no like, um, let me pray about this. Let me get some advice about this. Let me consider. No, he goes in there, and, and, and Tobiah must have been out at work or something like that. And he's like, what in the world? He just gets a crew together and cleans out the room. It says here that he put the incense back in there to purify the room. I mean, that must have stunk. I mean, he was like, man, I would rather have the smell of grain and incense in here than the smell of Tobiah. He's getting all of that stuff out of there. There's no discussion. There's no interaction. There's no meeting with the leadership to figure out exactly what needs to happen with this because in Nehemiah's mind, this is a compromise. They compromised. Now, Eliashib, it's hard to hate on Eliashib because a lot of us are like Eliashib. Probably have good intentions. He wants the best for Tobiah. He's like, listen, I'm priest over here. I just, I'm just trying to help people. I'm trying to reach out to people. I'm trying to well, get people back into the fold, you know. So he probably had good intentions. But it compromised the holiness of God's people. You guys with me on that? You know, just a little, just a little bit of compromise goes a long way. Actually, Jesus talks about that. He says, watch, watch the lives of these Pharisees. 
Because like yeast, it'll get through the batch of dough. Just watch them. Don't do what they do. And Jesus tells the, the people, he says, don't do what these religious people do. You know, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good character. You know, we use that with our, as parents, that's something that we use with our kids. You know, the teen, when the teen ministry, you know, I was leading teen ministry, we used to use that all the time. I don't know why you're hanging out with that guy. You're not trying to reach out. I know you're not trying to reach out. Bad company corrupts good character. But you know what? As adults, that, that's true for us, too. I think we've got to be careful. You know, sometimes we have good intentions. I want to reach out. I want to help out. You know, so this, this you know, I'm going to go to this bar over here and reach out. <laughs> you know, my coworkers, they're going to go to this strip club, and I'm just going to go reach, reach out. I want to help them out. You know? Some of us, it's our family. Some of it's our family. You know, we, we have this special cousin. We have this, this uh, you know, my uncle. I love my uncle. He, he took care of me, and uh, I got to take care of him. And, and there's nothing wrong with taking care of people. I mean, it's, 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 this is a difficult thing to talk about here. But you got to check your intentions. You know, good intentions doesn't mean that it's the best thing. You are who your friends are. You think, well, no, I'm influencing my friends. Yeah, well, not all the time. Bad company corrupts good character. A compromising companionship. And so what does Nehemiah do? He clears out the room. He puts some incense in there. He fumigates it. Can you imagine Tobiah coming back? What? Where's all my stuff? What's all my stuff doing out here? Nehemiah has to remind them, you have no inheritance in this situation. Get up on out. Do you know what I'm saying? You're out. Second problem he dealt with, a financial fiasco. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. And that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. And I put Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and the Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zechor, the son of Mataniah, wow, I can't believe I did that, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. They had vowed, literally just two chapters before that, they had vowed that they would bring the tithes and the offerings so that they would have a Levite, the Levites be able to focus on the temple of God and committed to following God's instruction regarding the tithes and so that Levites could devote their full attention to serving in the temple and instructing the people and wouldn't have to worry about their own eating and living, shelter and everything like that. But back then, just like in times today, there was selfishness when it came to money. And Nehemiah sees that the temple is being neglected and the people have gone against their original vow. And he gets them together, he gets the leaders together, and he rebukes them. You have neglected the house of God. What's wrong with you? 
Don't you just remember the pledge that you made, the vow that you made just a few chapters before? Probably didn't say chapters before, but, you know, you're with me on this, right? And then he organizes, and I love what he does. He organizes, he's not going to take care of it. He organizes a group of guys, and he says, okay, you're going to be responsible for this. And he, he gets his group together, and he says, you're, you're going to be in charge of this. You guys are going to be in charge of distributing the supplies amongst the Levites. So it's not like Nehemiah is the only one making decisions here, right? He, he, he gives the authority over to these guys. He brings a solution to the situation. And I love, I love what he does here. And I, it makes me think, um, you know, last year we, we, we was our first year um, in what we would call a cost center. So usually a lot of the funds that were given, the, the tithes that were given, were shared amongst the different uh, sectors, the different churches in the region. And last year we said, you know, well, why won't we shift that? Why won't we, whatever is taken up here will be used for whatever we have here. And uh, which, amen, just gives us more ownership as to what we're doing and building here in GLB. Um, so I was excited about that, and, and, and the leadership was excited about that, and the membership was excited. I mean, everybody was excited about this, and then, and then what I did was we presented some names, right? We said, hey, we, we want to prom- pr- uh, get a team together of people that are going to help provide advice uh, for decisions that are being made with finances, right? And so we, we started this church financial advisory committee. And uh, very, very grateful for this. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not the best with numbers. I'm not. I didn't do too well in math in high school. Um, so I love having really smart people in our church, and <laughs> they've helped so much uh, to provide and make decisions. We have trustworthy. I love this here. There were the, the uh, um, Zachar and. And Henan and all these guys says because they were considered trustworthy. You know, we have uh, Todd Dietrich and Dick G and Vince Robertson, Charlene Gepard and Ishmael Talavera providing input into how we use uh, the finances here because they are trustworthy. I'm so thankful for them. In fact, I got to share something here. Uh, you know, leaders make mistakes, right? So you got... I know you got a lot of grace with me, right? A lot of grace. Um, okay, so um, I got kind of fired up last week talking about some stuff that we want to do as a church. And one of the things I talked about was uh, we we're going to do a, a project called One for One. We're going to give a dollar. whatever Whoever comes to church, we budgeted it in the budget to give a dollar a person away to the community and stuff like that. And, you know, most everybody here was like, yeah, that, we got to give the community. Amen. Um, well, so grateful for our financial advisory committee as they uh, commented to me this past week that it's actually not in our budget to be able to do something like that. And so we need to do some things in order to get to a point where we're able to do this. You guys with me here? So I just wanted to apologize. We're going to have to kind of switch up the thing. And I'm taking back what I said last Sunday. And hey, my bad. My bad. Like I said, you know, I think... You know, I'll be honest. I think, you know, it's like zeal without knowledge, right? I got excited about something. I got passionate about something, and, but I had no knowledge. I thought I did because every leader thinks they do, right? Every leader thinks I got this, but I didn't. And I'm grateful for trustworthy brothers. Hey, uh, Rube, 
don't know if these numbers match up really well here. Uh, let's go ahead and, uh, you know, we got some things that we want to accomplish first before we get to that point. It's like, okay, amen. Do you forgive me? All right. You know my heart, right? We want to get to that point. That's, the, that's where we want to go. We want to get to a point where we're able to do everything that we want to do, plus be able to continue fulfilling the mission that God's given us, to feed the homeless, or feed, feed, the, feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to visit those in, pr- in prison, to oppress. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Which, with that, I just want to encourage the church, thank you so much for serving, uh, again, at the Christian Outreach in Action. And we're, we're going to continue this project every month, actually. Uh, going every month to provide uh, 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 actually a mini church service for the homeless there and then also providing a meal and serving and doing some projects around the building and uh, so anyways if you're interested in signing up for that on a continual basis man we're gonna this is gonna become one of our uh, projects here as a church amen so anyway now I love what Nehemiah does here after he kicks out Tobiah after he rebukes the officials, he, sa- he says this, Remember me for this, God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. And I love Nehemiah's honesty and realness. He's like, I don't, it's almost like, I don't know if this is what I'm supposed to be doing, but God, remember me, because I'm faithfully carrying out something for the house of my God and its services. The third problem he dealt with was a secularized Sabbath. He continues his journal and he discovers that the Israelites are trading and working on the Sabbath, which is a holy day to the Lord. Now, the Jewish Sabbath um, was not a Sunday. The Jewish Sabbath was Saturday. It was basically from Friday 6 p.m. until Saturday 6 p.m. That was the Jewish Sabbath. Okay, so the first day of the week was... Uh, Sunday started at Saturday, actually Saturday 6 p.m. on. That was the first day of the week. So Sunday was a work day. Now, we celebrate and we worship together on a Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, and that was a Sunday. So that's why we come together like this. So we're not held under this law of the Sabbath, although it's a great principle. You work six days, take the day off on the seventh day. Worship God, spend time with your family. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible principle that we can learn from and get hope from. Um, I want to encourage you uh, in your schedule, in your planning for this calendar year, schedule some Sabbaths in your life on a weekly basis. You'll see, man, it's, it's healthy, it's good, it points you toward God. But anyway, these guys have started working on the Sabbath, a day that they had vowed literally two chapters before, this is a day holy to our God. And, and so... He says, therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell, Friday 6 p.m., on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. Once or twice, I love this, 
Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside of Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. And from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. (laughs) I love Nehemiah's honesty on this. He's like, listen, we vowed to keep this day holy to our Lord. And you guys are desecrating it. You guys are no wonder God's always upset with us. We're always messing up his day, right? And he doesn't just rebuke the officials. He makes a plan. Okay, starting Friday, 5 p.m., before 6 p.m. Sabbath starts, I'm going to close the gates. Nobody's allowed in the city. And so these dudes carrying all their fish, trying to trade in the city, they have to stay outside the city and spend the night until Saturday night. That fish probably went rotten by that time. But Nehemiah was serious about this. And I love what Nehemiah does here. He takes us, he probably didn't win any popularity with that decision. Are you guys with me on this? He, he took a stand for something that was not going to be popular because he had conviction about God's law and God's word. And he said, and in fact, he took it further and he said, why are you even spending the night at the wall? Next time you do that, I'm going I'm to arrest you. You know, there are times in our life where we've got to make decisions that are just not going to be the best, the most popular decisions. I respect and honor, you know, the, many, many of you have, set, have had to tell your boss, listen, I, I've, I'm so grateful for this work, but I will not, cannot work on a Sunday. Because that's my church day. I can come to church, I can come to work like at 1 o'clock on a Sunday, but not in the morning. That's my time to worship God. And it's interesting to me. I, I've had many interactions with, 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 with disciples in this way, with, with Christ followers. And they tell me, you know, I'm very fearful about having this conversation with their boss. And yet what happens almost every single time that, they, that, that you have the faith to take a stand, God honors that faith. In some occasions, people have gotten a raise <laughs> and a promotion when they've had to tell their boss, I will not work on a Sunday. Some of us have small group, and you have to work on a small group night and say, well, I, I, I need to be with my brothers and sisters. Can I leave early? Can I not work that day? Whatever it is. I'm telling you, it's not popular, but God honors it. You know, I remember um, in, a, in a dating relationship, I'm following Jesus, she's following Jesus, and we say we're going to be absolutely pure. And my coworkers, I was working at a at a sports authority at the time in high school, my dream job. And, um, you know, I get to bring around basketballs and baseballs and football. I'm like, this is amazing. Who would want to work here? That feeling left after about two months of being there. But anyway, a lot of my coworkers, I remember a lot of my coworkers at that time, I think I shared this before, a lot of my coworkers at that time were in college. And so they'd always be like, oh, Rube, what's up, what's up, what's up? You, hit, you, 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 you sleep with her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They talk like guys do in the locker room and i remember i'll never forget this i would tell him no i'm not we're not like that we're not sleeping together we're not we want to be pure now i'll tell you the scales fell off their eyes these guys are like five years older than me now as a senior in high school when you got college guys talking to you you think you're kind of like you know cool whatever and these these guys are like wow dude i don't think i could ever do what you do but i respect you for it 
now tell me more about this church that you go to. I mean, it was like a natural, because, because I decided to take a stand. You see what I'm saying? Um, I want to encourage us. Let's take a stand, even though it is not popular, and see God honor it. You know, we made a decision for our children's workers, our children's ministry workers. We said, you know what? We're not going to ask for volunteers anymore. We're just going to kind of tell you when you're up. The draft system. It's not, it's not a popular decision. But as a leadership, we felt, you know what? We've got to enforce the issue here. These are our children. Parents, these are our children. It's our responsibility to raise them. As a parent of a child, we need to be involved in children's ministry no matter what. And so we've started doing that. It's not popular. Probably didn't win me any votes, but we're going to stick to it. Because conviction, the bigger picture conviction is we're responsible for our kids. That should be the number one ministry for every parent here is the kids' kingdom ministry. You guys with me on this? Um, The closing of the doors for Sunday, we tried it out today, it went well, but for some of us, it's not a popular thing. It's not like, oh, man, I always get there a few minutes late. Come on. Give me a little leeway, Rube, you know, whatever. Listen, let's just do it. Honors God. Some of us need to take a stand for what honors God. The last thing, that, the last issue that he dealt with was a domestic disobedience. The Israelites began to intermarry with other peoples and nations around them, and their children were growing up not knowing Hebrew, which was the language of God's law. So now a generation was growing up that wouldn't know God's word because they started marrying off to peoples around them. And this is so huge in the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, it's so huge. You are my, God would tell them, you are my people. Do not intermarry or give your sons and daughters in marriage to the peoples of the outlying nations. God wanted a purified, holy people. And then what was happening is the people are like, well, this is a better business deal for me to marry off my kid over here. And now their children are growing up not understanding Hebrew, and now they're not unable to understand God's law. So a whole generation is growing up not understanding God's law. So check out what Nehemiah did. This is going to blow your mind. It blew my mind. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I don't know if he was cussing them out. I hope he wasn't. But I'm just saying, I called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name. And I said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying Foreign women? (laughs) Dude, Nehemiah was no joke. Can you imagine showing up to a small group meeting 
or a leadership meeting. You know, some of you lead small groups and you're showing up to the leaders meeting. And, you know, you're, the leadership is, I mean, Papa Joe is just so mad, so angry. As our elder, you know, here in the church, he's just going around pulling people's hair out. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. That's a beat down small group right there. He was serious about this sin because it was affecting, it, was a, it wasn't just about the parents, it was affecting future generations. This is what I love about Nehemiah's leadership. He didn't beat around the bush. He didn't, like, skirt around the issue. He didn't, like, send a, 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 a read-in-between-the-lines kind of text message to the person. He went to God. Remember me with favor, God, as I take care of this. He was zealous about God and his holiness, and he met these problems head on. You know, in such a politically correct, oversensitive world that we live in, this type of dealing with issues would be seen as intolerant, non-compassionate, not understanding of the context or situation the other is in. But I wonder if, as those who have been forgiven by Christ and strive to follow him, I wonder if we've gotten soft and forgotten how Jesus himself dealt with issues. When Jesus saw the market full of sellers, he made a whip out of cords and drove them out. These people had good intentions. They had good intentions. Let's make it easier for people to bring the sacrifice by selling the goods at the temple court. They had good intentions, a good idea. But Jesus enters the marketplace and tears it up and said, this is a house of prayer and worship for my father. And the disciples remembered zeal for his house, for your house will consume me. When Jesus was confronted by Peter, and he could have bent to Peter's will that he would not go to the cross, he turns around and he rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you don't have the things of God in your mind, but only the things of man. When Jesus interacts with a woman at the, at the well in Samaria, and she's not understanding his statement about living, living water. He calls her out. Says, hey, go find your husband. Oh, I don't have a husband. That's right, because you'll have five husbands. What I have will fill you up. Now, I'm wondering if Jesus was at times somewhat socially awkward. Saying stuff like this. Yeah, that's right. Go find, go find five. Go, go, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Oh, that's because you have had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not even your husband. <laughs> little awkward smile or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> little awkward silence. You know, the woman's like, did this guy, like, read my Facebook or something like that? I mean, what's going on? He calls her out. He tells her her sin right there and there. He doesn't worry about her reaction. And she responds. You know, when everyone is ignoring this demon-possessed man, Legion, nobody wants to go touch him, nobody wants to go talk to him. Jesus enters the chaos. He rebukes the demons and heals that man. When the Pharisees of that day continue to persecute Jesus and question his every move, he speaks straight at them and he calls them a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. 
For every interaction where Jesus shows mercy, kindness, gentleness, there's an interaction or a teaching that is head-on, straight up, in your face. Zeal for his house will consume him. Does that describe you as a follower of Jesus? Does that type of zeal describe you as a follower of Jesus? What if you dealt, what if we, what if we started dealing with issues of pornography this way? Or drunkenness this way? Or idolatry or greed? What if we start dealing with greed in this way? Does zeal for the house of God consume you? Should it just consume the leadership of the church? No. If we as Christians are are all ministers of reconciliation, according to 2 Corinthians 5 and 6. It should consume all of us. What's in your life right now that needs to get dealt with? Maybe it's a compromising companion. You have good intentions, but you know in your heart this is not the best, and you're not strong enough to handle it. Get rid of him or her. Fumigate the situation. Maybe it's selfishness with money or a lack of faith. I would say pray and get conviction. Maybe it's having, um, maybe it's having deep conviction from God's word on something that you know will not win the popularity contest in your family or at school, but you know will honor God. Maybe you're intermarrying with the world a bit too much. You're flirting with the world. You're walking too close to the line. Well, I can do this because I'm strong enough to get close enough to the line. Not prioritizing God's priorities. Let me tell you, you may need to get your hair pulled out. Allow someone into your life to help you regain zeal for God's house. You may need to get your beard pulled out too. You know, what's amazing about God in this whole story, again, I want to reemphasize this. What's amazing about God is that he still didn't give up on the people. They messed up over and over again, yet God still loved them. He had a plan for them, and he brought Jesus into the world to show us and give us hope. I don't know how you are with your faith. I know I can get down on myself because of my lack of faith. Or because of my selfishness. Ah, leave me alone. Or my pride. I got the answers. I know what's up. I can get down when I stumble. I don't know how you are. I can get down when I stumble in the areas of purity. Temptations of lust. Or impure thinking. Or when I speak without thinking. You know, taming the tongue. What helps me, though, is to see how much God pursued the Israelites in the Old Testament. And he pursues me through Christ. That at the end of the day, God still loves. God wants something for me, not from me. He wants holiness, righteousness, forgiveness, mercy. He wants this for me. When I fall or when I stumble, it's because I'm trying to do this on my own power or because I think I may have a better idea than God. God wants vision for you. He wants revival for your soul. He wants you to get to work in building the wall in your life. 
He wants something for you. You know, as we close out this series, my hope and my prayer is that we would all be able to gain some hope and encouragement, Romans 15, 4, from Nehemiah. He was just like you and me. I'm not sure if pulling out the beards and pulling out the hair was the right decision. I'm not sure. It got their attention, that's for sure. Just like you and me. I hope that we would have vision from God through prayer, that we would face opposition in a way that honors him, that our souls would continually be revived because of him, that we would deal with issues and setbacks like Nehemiah did, and after this long fight, enduring this long fight on earth, we would continually approach God, not knowing if we're doing it right or not, and just say the words that Nehemiah closes his journal saying, remember me with favor, my God. That's all we can do. Let me do my best. I'm in the midst of some of this chaos and maybe having to pull out some hair. Remember me with favor, my God. Hand me another brick. Let's do the work God has for us. If you're here for the first time, I want to encourage you to join us in this great endeavor. Thank you for listening to the Greater Long Beach Podcast. For more information about our church, please visit greaterlongbeachchurch.com.